Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back to another episode of Baby Steps from Welfare with me, Amy Lane. This mini-series aims to open up the conversation about a fit family life and empower you with the information you need to prepare and run with parenthood. However, do know it's not a replacement for expert and medical advice. If you're worried about your health, either physical or mental, please do seek in-person help and support. So, by now, you guys know that running can have a huge impact on your overall well-being. But what happens when your well-intentioned run plans aren't held back by kit or a lack of a training plan, but something much bigger? Today, I'm talking about the interplay between mind and body and how that can affect mothers across the UK. According to the NHS, more than one in every 10 women experience postnatal depression within a year of giving birth, which although is a really uncomfortable stat, it's one you might not find terribly surprising as there's a good chance you might know or have heard of someone who's experienced this mental health illness. But how about if I told you that for some women, depression, just like many other illnesses, doesn't just start in the weeks after birth, it can start before. According to MIND, perinatal mental health problems, those which occur during pregnancy or in the first year following the birth of a child, affect up to 20% of new and expectant mums, and cover a wide range of conditions. And these illnesses can reverberate throughout an entire family unit. Although I haven't been diagnosed with a perinatal mental health illness, there have been times during this pregnancy when I've cried into my dinner and felt immobilised by low moods. Today, major depressive disorders have become such an important public health concern that in 2001, the World Health Organization determined that depression is one of the leading causes of disability in the world and is a particular burden to us women. But dealing with depression is complex, almost always involving different treatments, and prescribing a run isn't a quick fix. But there is research to suggest that body-mind activities, such as exercise, can support a mother's need both pre- and post-birth. Today I'm joined by Dr Michael Craig, a consultant psychiatrist at London's Maudsley Hospital and a leading expert in mood disorders, reproductive psychiatry and perinatal mental health. We're also joined by runner Sarah Pritchard, who suffered from crippling postnatal depression after the birth of her second child and on advice from her psychologist, used running in her journey back to full health. Let's meet today's guests, Dr Michael and Sarah. Welcome to Baby Steps by Welfare. Good morning, Amy. Thank you for having me. How are you both? Good, a little damp around the edges. Went for a bit of a soggy run this morning, but yeah, otherwise fine. <laughs> I'm great, thank you. I've been up and about. I haven't been for a run today. I went for one yesterday. I have to say, I'm very jealous of both of you. I can't wait to get back to running. So to kick off today's show, Dr. Michael, can we start talking about your specialism? As when I discovered it, I found it so fascinating Even as a health editor with years of working with experts, I didn't realise that there was experts out there focusing on perinatal mental health. How did you come to work in this area? Well, the short story is I did a degree in psychology and went into medicine to become a psychiatrist, but fell in love with obstetrics and gynaecology and subsequently trained as an obstetrician and gynaecologist with an interest in the psychological aspects of the speciality. And I then went and spent a a sabbatical period working with a professor of perinatal psychiatry called Chani Kumar at the Institute of Psychiatry. And he persuaded me to come and become a psychiatrist and try and understand things the other way around. And I've since developed research and clinical expertise at the interface of the two specialities. 
Interesting. And Sarah, first of all, thank you for coming on to talk about your experience. I know talking about personal issues isn't an easy one and does take a lot of courage. No, but I'm really grateful. And I think the more we talk about these things, the better. Thank you. Throughout the show, we're going to dig into your experience and how you've got your journey back on track from postnatal depression. But can we talk about the moment when you realised that you were experiencing poor mental health? And was it you who noticed it or was it those around you? Yeah, sure. So you've referenced, I guess, my second postnatal depression experience. Mm. And that was last year after the birth of my second daughter, Marnie. But actually, I did suffer it the first time round after the birth of my eldest daughter, PMA, who's now six. And so both of those experiences in terms of how or when I noticed or others noticed were a little bit different. And I'd say first time around, and I guess that's slightly more interesting from the point of view of somebody who had never, in my case, experienced any kind of mental ill health whatsoever. Mm. I'd say within 24 hours, I knew something was up. And that started with me not being able to sleep. I couldn't switch off. I was on this massive high from birth. I had, in fact, both cases, two incredibly positive birth experiences, but I was so pumped full of adrenaline, if you like. That's the only way I can liken it. I could not switch off and I couldn't sleep. And and I guess the first time around, I thought, you know what, this is probably quite normal. I've been through a lot. There's lots of hormones flying around. I'm sure it will happen when I get tired enough, but it just didn't happen. And so that was really the first alarm bell. And in that situation, it took quite a lot of persuasion, I suppose, of people around me, of me saying, actually, I think something's up. And and the people who were supporting me, the midwives were sort of saying, oh, no, you know, this is probably baby blues. And, you know, I think just give it a couple of days, things are still coming down. And I I love kids. I love babies. I've been very fortunate to have lots of experience with newborns, with extended family. And I just thought, you know what, this isn't me. I I don't feel right. I don't feel like I'm relaxed enough to kind of even experience what's going on. And so I suppose the second time around last year, I was very, very primed and very aware of the potential for it to happen again. I had been warned that having had it once, that there was a potential for it to happen a second time. And so everyone was on the alert, not just me. And actually, it took longer that time for me to really, really realise that it was happening again, I guess, because I mentally felt much more kind of relaxed and open to it either happening or not. I did manage to kind of last a little bit longer, if you like, perhaps a week or so before I realised again it was the sleep. That was the first thing that started to go wobbly. And everybody was kind of ready at that point to to step in and help. Unfortunately, I couldn't sort of stave it off and it ended up being a more severe experience the second time around. But yeah, sort of a combination and a bit different, yeah, both experiences. Michael, we've heard about Sarah suffering from lack of sleep and that was her warning sign that something was going on. But what are the main common signs and symptoms that women should be looking out for with regards to perinatal mental health disorders? Well, there's clearly a number of different perinatal mental Mm. health disorders that are going to have different symptoms. Because it's a massive umbrella term, right? It is. It is. And it's it's confusing in some ways. The the concept of postnatal depression, for example, is one where the studies seem to suggest that the incidence of that is around 10% of the population are vulnerable to postnatal depression. But actually, if one looks at the population as a whole, one also sees figures as a, of around 10%. But when one looks at other things like bipolar disorder, there is a much, much higher prevalence of people being triggered off postnatally. And I was interested in what Sarah was saying about, for example, her mind not stopping and not being able to sleep, because that can be indicative of a slightly hypomanic phase of a, of a mood disorder, which are much, much more common postnatally. But coming back to your question, there was a, a specific scale that was developed to try and tease out things like postnatal depression, because some of the symptoms that women will experience around the time of pregnancy are normal. So, for example, having a newborn baby, most people will know, I've also had children myself, sleep is sometimes something that's disrupted, and therefore it's difficult to use a sleep measure as an indication that somebody's got depression. Similarly, things like appetite, which quite often change during depression, are also going to change during pregnancy. So the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale was developed to try and take out the things that were going to be less indicative of depression at that time. 
I think one feature that many people with postnatal depression notice, though, as well, is anxiety. And there seems to be a very significant anxiety component in many women who have postnatal depression. So I don't know what Sarah's exact experiences were. but Yeah, I, I mean, I'm nodding here because the anxiety was the thing that probably kicked in first, I'd say, in terms of the symptoms you're describing. So when I realised that I couldn't sleep, and that was because I kind of couldn't switch my mind off, very quickly, I started to experience really, really frightening physical sensations when I tried to sleep. So accepting what you're saying, that obviously with a newborn around, you're kind of primed already that your sleep's going to get interrupted. I was blessed, probably just because Mother Nature has this way, with two babies who actually did sleep, you know, (laughs) from the word go. They, They were both seemed to kind of just really relax at certain times of day. And and even if they were not asleep, they were certainly kind of very quiet, etc. But I couldn't. And and that's when I knew that there was a difference. And so that as I tried to fall asleep, and I, I was really trying hard to kind of create those great sort of sleep hygiene circumstances of baths and warm cups of tea and all that kind of thing at bedtime. But I kind of describe it as my brain was sort of trying to switch off to that level of beyond deep relaxation into actually falling asleep, I would have a panic attack. You know, I was experienced prickling sensations all over my arms and legs. I would get incredibly hot. My heart would start racing. My hands would start sweating. And I would I would be, you know, hyperventilating. That was the thing that was crippling because my brain, it felt like it actually become afraid to fall asleep. And so the anxiety then sort of spiraled. Michael, one thing it would be great to understand a bit more about is what is the difference between baby blues and a perinatal mental health illness? Because baby blues gets talked about a lot and it's a it's a phrase which is in the everyday language. But how do women know when it's not baby blues? Well, the baby blues is pretty short-lived and it tends to occur around day five. And it's normal for many women to have a dip in mood around that time. Depression is something that lasts longer than that day or two. So that feeling of either very low mood or nothing, a more profound drop in energy, a difficulty in enjoying anything, what we call anhedonia, is a very significant component of depression that most people will notice in terms of not being able to enjoy things that they might have previously enjoyed or eating and the enjoyment they get from food. Sleep's obviously difficult for us to pick up on just because of the things that we've alluded to with regards to being with a newborn. And similarly, concentration, which is another hallmark of depression, is something that's slightly harder to assess postnatally because if you're not sleeping, you probably won't be able to concentrate quite so well. Having suicidal thoughts or at least sort of feeling very hopeless and that life's not worth living would also be something that would differentiate from sort of normal low mood. And those are the kinds of thoughts that many women find it very difficult to talk about at any time, not women, just women and men, but postnatally, because of the concerns people will then have about the baby being taken away, are things that many women will find hard to actually discuss with their doctors or healthcare workers. And that's something else that I would never have been able to articulate or envisage being able to articulate properly, probably prior to having a baby. And it's something that I think can be incredibly frightening. But to me, it was, again, that feeling of of a complete lack of motivation, complete detachment from what I would consider my normal life, and then feelings of just not wanting to, to be around anymore. And I think it's a, diff- a really difficult conversation, I agree, but I think it's really important that we do try and articulate what, what that is like. And, and for me, it was a sense of, you know, never wanting to hurt my baby, absolutely not, and never wanting anything bad to happen to her, but to also not feel any attachment to her whatsoever. And with regards to myself, again, never wanting to hurt myself, but to actually just potentially not want to just to be here anymore to just want to step away in whatever form that meant. And that never became a kind of a a crystallized vision for me. It was more that lack of hope. And that's something I wouldn't have been able to understand. And, and, you know, whatever reading you've done and experiences you've, you've shared via other people, I think it's important to try and, and be honest about what that can feel like, but, you know, you can move past it. 
with the right support. I guess for me, I never cried. I mean, that's a really basic thing to sort of say, but with the baby blues and, and having lots and lots of friends and family have had babies, you know, by day four or five, this classic period that Dr. Craig's alluding to, you know, floods of tears, feeling really kind of like drained, but that never happened to me. I never cried. I never laughed. I just felt flat. And then suddenly I found myself really within those first two weeks experiencing many of those physical anxiety sensations throughout the day. Then I stopped eating and everything Mm. just kind of spiralled. Because there are both psychological and physiological symptoms of having a mood disorder, aren't there? Which I think that I didn't particularly understand or realise until at times in my life where I have slipped into bouts of poor mental health. And I didn't know that those physiological symptoms were linked to my mental health. Is that something which a lot of women don't realise, Michael? Or is it that they only can spot the things going on in their head, but they also then can't see the things going on in their body? That's certainly true for both depression and anxiety disorders. So as you've alluded to with depression, there are what we call somatic symptoms, which would include things relating to sleep and appetite. And with anxiety disorders as well, people can experience that all over the body. So I'll sometimes get referred people who are presented with palpitations or headaches or gastric problems, and they've had numerous investigations which have found nothing. And although people say, well, I don't seem to be worrying that much, or I don't feel low, and I think that's an important thing to add with regards to depression, because some people with depression don't actually feel sad, they feel nothing. And then they may have the physical symptoms as well and don't realize that those physical symptoms are also indicative of depression. So being able to recognize that these conditions do have a very physical component And depression, clinical depression, doesn't just mean feeling sad and anxiety doesn't just mean worrying is an important message to get across. These physical symptoms are very often a a profound component of them that actually differentiate them from normal sadness or normal anxiety. That really, really rings a bell for me, just that feeling of nothing. And that's how I really recognised there was something wrong in me. I'm normally a really bubbly and sort of positive person. And I literally felt like someone had switched light off. It was flat, completely kind of void. And I guess in that particular period of a woman's life in particular, you're expecting to feel certain things, particularly towards your baby. And they just weren't there. You know, Marnie could have been anyone's baby. I, I just, I felt nothing. And had you suffered during pregnancy? Because I don't think I realised until I'd been pregnant with my first child about the instances of mood disorders within pregnancy. I always, I've always i known about postnatal depression and I've had friends which have experienced it and I feel that it hits the news. But I feel that the before stages and in pregnancy, we don't talk about it too much. No, I don't have any experience of any kind of symptoms during pregnancy. And as I say, I, I had no experience of mental health prior to either pregnancies or even between the two pregnancies. So, so no, I, I was lucky enough to not experience it during pregnancy. I imagine that'd be very frightening as well. I think one of the interesting things about Sarah's story is that there are some women, it appears, who are vulnerable to sudden changes in hormones, particularly postnatally. So postnatally, one experiences a very significant drop in hormones like estrogen and progesterone. And it's likely that there are some women who are very sensitive to that specific drop, and that's the trigger for their postnatal depression. And that happens very early on, like Sarah's described. I think later on, it's more likely to be social and environmental factors that are playing a greater part in triggering people's depression. But in the early stages, like Sarah experiences, where it it does feel very much like a a switch suddenly going one way or the other, this hormonal component seems to be playing a much greater part, probably. And do we know why some women are more susceptible to this change in hormone levels than others? I, I don't think one necessarily could answer the reason as to why that happens in some women and not others, other than to say that there appears to be a genetic vulnerability, as there is with many things in medicine and psychiatry. And it's not clear why that is the case in some women and not others. But one does find when one does genetic analyses of people that are vulnerable to these kinds of what we call reproductive depression, 
that there are genetic differences. And what research needs to do going forwards is to try and divide women up into those that are having postnatal depression from one thing, like the hormonal component, and those that are having postnatal depression for other reasons, and to then target treatments, ideally, more specifically to those groups. I've had a lot of women reach out to me when I was asking, I put it out on Instagram asking for questions or experiences relating to today's topic. And I had a lot of women get in touch to say that they suffered in the past from depression and they're no longer suffering, but they're pregnant. And they're now concerned labour and birth is going to trigger it again. Is that a likelihood for a lot of women or is it just a case by case basis? I suppose it comes down to why they were suffering in the beginning. Yeah. So I think as we've alluded to, there's these two different types. So there's the type that's triggered very early on the reproductive type of depression, and then there's the type that's triggered later, which is more likely to be social and environmental factors. Clearly, if one's had it much earlier on, there's a greater likelihood than somebody later, depending on what the factors are around them or the environmental factors. Bipolar disorder, however, is something that is highly likely to recur in the absence of treatment. When I say highly likely, I mean more than 50%. Whereas if somebody's had a postnatal depressive episode previously, it would be less than 50%. So being optimistic, I would say to people, if they've had an episode before of postnatal depression that's not bipolar, they probably won't have another episode, but their risk is greater than somebody who's never had one. Whereas if somebody has bipolar depression and they're not having treatment, I would tell them they probably will have an episode unless they have some form of treatment. Were you worried, Sarah, with your second pregnancy that you were going to have the same experience? I know obviously you then did and it was much worse for you, but did you go into that pregnancy fearful? I didn't actually. No, I I think I, I got myself into a place where I thought if it happens again, I know I can get better. I was also really lucky to surround myself with a support crew, which included my health visitor, the same health visitor who had sort of seen me through the first episode. I put myself on the radar with the perinatal mental health midwife in our local area. I had a really good chats with the GP, even made contact with the what is called here our primary care liaison service, which is the kind of bridge service between your GP and there's a sort of psychiatric service. And I I guess I felt like there were quite a lot of social environmental factors I felt contributed to my first episode. We'd moved from New Zealand back to England. I was working right up until I had Pia. And I kind of just thought, you know what, I'm in the best place for this to probably not happen again. And and I, I sort of hadn't read too much into the statistics or the likelihood. And so, no, I think I, I felt very positive that that it wasn't a done deal. And during that time in between your two pregnancies, how much did exercise and running play a part of your recovery and helping you manage your mood? So I think probably still in between pregnancies, running and exercise were what they've always been to me, which is a a really enjoyable way to sort of stay healthy, stay motivated, feel good about you know, my health and my body. So it wasn't as much a strategy as it is now since last year, since having Marnie. I wanted to do a half marathon again between babies, for instance, but but that was very much part of my sort of everyday running life. And running, I think, has moved into another sphere for me now since last year when it kind of took on a slightly new momentum, for want of a better word. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Michael, we obviously all know about the runner's high and that doing exercise releases endorphins. But can we get more of an expert take on why adding exercise into your lifestyle can really help with improving your mental health and why is a suggested modality for dealing with poor mental health? I mean, there's been a a number of studies that have tried to look at the effects of running in the treatment of depression. And interestingly, when one looks at the the meta-analyses, the effects of exercise on the treatment of depression is much less than one might have predicted. And um, Mm. I have thought about why that might be the case. It's not entirely clear. But the studies that have been done with regards to aerobic exercise and running generally have found that it has effects that are occurring in the brain. The question, though, is whether or not those associations are the reason why aerobic exercise and, and running are actually causing these differences or whether they are just associated differences that are not the actual cause. So, for example, there are parts of the limbic system, like the hippocampus, which is a a region buried in the depth of the brain. Studies have found increase in the number of neurons within the hippocampus uh, in people who have been engaging in aerobic exercise. Now, quite how that exactly translates into something meaningful is difficult, but it does suggest that things like aerobic exercise and running are having a direct effect on brain structure and brain function in regions that we know are probably important with regards to mood. I think maybe, as with depression that I've been talking about previously, there are likely to be different subtypes of depression, and it's possible that some are going to be more responsive to aerobic exercise and some are going to be less responsive. I think people know, and I've got enough patients who have told me that doing aerobic exercise has been really important to getting them out of their depression or their anxiety disorders. And I don't think going back to research papers is going to make any difference to that. Sarah, what was your experience? Because I understand the second time round, you actually went into a treatment centre, didn't you, for your depression? And it was during that time that actually running did play a major part. Would you would you share that experience with us? Absolutely. So the second time around, um, I was treated in the community at the mother and baby unit in Southmead Hospital in Bristol. And it was there that the amazing therapist, in fact, she's a clinical psychologist, suggested that I might think about bringing my trainers to the unit and maybe my running kit. And at the time, you know, it felt very early days to be thinking about anything other than just trying to fall asleep, build a bond with Marnie, start to sort of get my head back into gear, as it were. But my husband brought all my kit to the hospital and the nurses worked with me to build incredibly slowly from literally put your running shoes by your bed in the morning you know let's challenge yourself to 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 just put them on go for a walk around the unit go for a walk around the car park if you feel like it and and to to build really 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 slowly because at that point it was explained to me and, and this has really stuck with me that I had absolutely zero motivation And that's a really weird feeling. I was going through the motions of life, showering, eating, you know, looking after Marnie, but I had no compulsion. I had no interest or sort of drive. But but the clinical psychologist on the unit explained that actually behavior breeds motivation often. And she explained that if you if you can force yourself with our help and support to, to exhibit some of those behaviors, which of course were really familiar to me, because running is something that's been part of my life for a really long time, that actually you can generate some motivation from those behaviors. It felt like box ticking and it felt like, again, just going through the motions. But my brain was sort of being tricked and that sort of area maybe deep down inside was kind of waking up to the fact that actually I know what this feels like this feels really familiar this is something I love and it was hard it was really tough and there were runs that I cried all the way around and there were runs that I gave up on and there were runs that I you know got to the end of the road and came back but it it was like magic it was you know a a very very good friend of mine who I, I run all the time with said that 
out of everything she sort of saw me through in that period, it was during my runs that little bits of me were coming back. Do you see that a lot in clinic, Michael? Is it a case of that you have to tempt people time and time and again to to embrace something like exercise? It is. And I think Sarah had the advantage, of course, that she was a runner before. So mm. getting back into running was a much easier task than it would be to persuade somebody who'd never run before to start going running. And I think the important thing with exercise is to try and find something that people can potentially enjoy. I mean, Sarah has alluded to the fact that she enjoys running and has done before and was able to get back into doing something she enjoyed. Some people hate it. And for those people, running would not be the right thing. And the other thing is just getting into the habits because developing good habits is something that takes effort. But once the habits have been developed, it's much easier to continue them. I think the other thing that Sarah's made reference to is this sort of idea that you kind of need to jumpstart the brain when it's depressed. And there, there are various ways of doing that. But exercise does seem to be a good way for some people. And in clinic, how much is exercise used as a treatment modality? Is it is it a major part of what psychiatrists often suggest to clients or is it still almost like an add-on to other therapies? That would definitely vary from clinician to clinician and the severity of depression. Running can be a very useful complementary thing to the other therapies. The concern I've got for some people is that they veer away from treatments like medications that are going to be very helpful because they've got a mindset which says medication is bad and toxic and they won't take it, whereas running and various other things aren't. And it's very hard to sort of persuade people who are of that mindset to try something when actually in the more severe end of depression, I think things like medication are often essential and things like running and other things that can go with that should be perceived as complementary, as mm. they very often are, as opposed to alternative. And that's a very hard discussion to have with lots of people. I don't know whether it was with you, but it was. Well, do you know, it's a really good point. And that's something that I struggle with more the first time around than the second time. I was very, very cautious and worried about taking any kind of medication. I now feel 100% it absolutely has a role to play. And I wouldn't want to sort of come across with my story that running in any way was the sort of silver bullet. I could mm. not have even put my trainers on had it not been for the medication journey that I'd already been on at that point. And, and honestly, you know, I was told if we don't get you to sleep, you will sort of escalate down a path and we're not sure quite where you'll end up but that there was talk of psychosis and, and all sorts and I just had to trust the experts at that point and you know there was a point where I was taking a lot of medication it felt really quite out of control I didn't like it at all but I ultimately knew that it was the right thing for that time and it didn't last that long you know, at that stage, the, the most important things were, were getting me to sleep and getting me mentally in a place that I could function, you know, not least have a relationship with my baby. So that played a huge role in the early stages of recovery before I could get to the stage where running was even a possibility. Because what's interesting is, should it have been something that you could see and you were told to take antibiotics for something, mm. I'm sure you would have just done it absolutely well even with things you can't see if you think about something like blood pressure very often people don't know they've got high blood pressure and there are things that you can do to bring it down like exercise and dressing your diet but for some people they still have high blood pressure there's a biological thing and they will accept they need to take antihypertensives to treat that similarly if you have asthma you'll take an inhaler to treat that if you've got diabetes you might have to take medication or insulin you can't see these things but you will accept the fact that there's something in your body that's not functioning as it should do and you need to take something to rectify that people seem to apply a whole different set of rules to their brains which is probably the most complex biological organ in the body but the fact is, when you are in these episodes of severe depression or other mental health problems, there are points where these things cannot fix it. That doesn't mean that they're irrelevant. With the case of depression, it's sometimes important that you do take the medication along with the running and the psychological therapy and the other things. But as I say, people have a very different set of rules that they apply to mental health, which comes down to, unfortunately, 
an ignorance with regards to mental health, which is something that's only get, that's going to get dispelled if people talk about it more and dispel some of the stigma around it. And it must be exaggerated more, that kind of stigma and self-worry when you've got a baby and potentially breastfeeding and all those type of things. Because I know even um, in the past week, I, I haven't been very well and I've been prescribed some medication for the final bit of my pregnancy. But my immediate thought was, I don't want to take anything because I don't want it to affect the baby. And even though I was there in a hospital and the doctors are prescribing it, there was still that kind of hurdle I had to get over with putting medication in my body right now because I'm nine months pregnant. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, th- I, you know, I sympathize with that massively, not just as a mum as well. I think if you know yourself, you know your body and potentially not somebody who's quick to take any kind of medication maybe, but there's a role for all of these things. And, and you know, no doctor in my experience, is ever going to, to prescribe or suggest something that's going to be detrimental mm-hmm. to, to either of you. And, and you know, for me, anyway, it was a case of, do you know what? Big picture here. We've got to look after you in order for you to be able to, to be a mum. The other thing is the effects of not treating depression mm-hmm. and anxiety mm-hmm. during pregnancy and after pregnancy on the developing brain of the fetus and the baby postnatally because there's a lot of research that's suggesting that those conditions do have some effects on the developing brain. Those effects may not all be bad, but they have effects. So it's not that it's a neutral thing by not taking medication. You could actually be leading to changes that are significant by avoiding treatment either during pregnancy or afterwards. So that is something that also often gets missed in people's calculations with regards to whether to take something or not take something. Gosh, that's so interesting because you think you probably think you're doing the best thing when ultimately, you know, you might not be. You it might you might be, but you might not be. Yeah, but ultimately that comes back to treat yourself, make sure that you're better, do everything you can to do that, and that's probably the best way to start thinking about it. Is there anything that women can then do as almost like self-help before that? Like, should we be keeping a diary during pregnancy to try and self-spot areas of concern so that you can start to have those conversations? Um, I think keeping a diary would probably be uh, an additional stress for lots of people that they might not want to have. (laughs) But I think certainly being aware of what those symptoms are and also being aware that coming forward and discussing them is likely to lead to help and not to what many people fear, a risk that their baby's going to be taken away from them or social services are going to get involved or they're going to be deemed an unfit mother. Because I think a reason why lots of people don't bring these things up is through a fear of what might happen if they were to discuss just exactly what they were thinking and feeling. Does that feel right to you, Sarah? Absolutely. And and that's why I have really sort of made it a, a bit of a mission, particularly since my second experience, to just talk about it as much as possible. I think the more we talk about it, the more it becomes less of a taboo, you know, that women feel able to say, do you know what, I, I'm not quite sure I feel right. And, you know, this is how I feel. And actually, it's totally okay to open up and own those feelings and and to find somebody who you feel comfortable to share that with knowing that actually it's not you it's you know that a big part of my kind of therapy and, and treatment particularly with my talking therapies was to distinguish the illness from myself and and to actually be able to separate those two and say the reason you're feeling this or you're, you're you think you're you know feeling these things is it's not you it, it is the illness and it's just helpful to have the language, I suppose, to be able to talk about these things without fear that someone's going to say, whoa, OK, hang on, there's something really wrong here. You, you know, you are an unfit mother. This is not a safe environment. Never at any point in either of my experiences did anybody make any suggestion that I should be either separated from either of my babies 
or that I had done anything wrong. And most importantly, and I remember this from the very, very first GP appointment I had with my first experience with my first baby, he said, you will get better. And I know that's not the same for everyone. And I'm, I'm, guess lucky in this way that I have these very extreme sort of mental ill health experiences postnatally but then I I can and do recover yes I have strategies to kind of get on top of anxiety and things but I think having some hope that actually this isn't you this is an illness that you're experiencing and it's okay because we can deal with it and you will get past it just takes away that fear that that sort of worry about judgment ultimately you know protects that that mother and baby relationship. Sarah, aside from getting professional help and part of your professional help did help you get back into running, but running groups and networks have played such a massive part in your journey back to better health. Definitely. How did you psych yourself up or reach out to other runners? Because I can imagine when you're feeling so low and unmotivated that's an even bigger step than just putting your trainers on and going for a plod around the block because you're putting yourself in a social situation which as Michael's mentioned earlier on can also uh, be tough. Definitely yeah I mean those first that first run back in a group again was really quite frightening and I tried not to build it up and I actually had a friend who I've run with for a long time again, and she she leads this incredible running community in Bath. She's called Hannah the Runner. And she ran with me and we just chatted about life and everything. And it wasn't directed at the experience I'd been through, but it, it was just, it was almost like part of a sort of therapy in itself. And that took away the element of I'm running in a big group with with lots of people of different levels and how far are we going to go? And, you know, and I hadn't run very far for a really long time. I thought, you know, am I going to be able to finish it? You know, my husband was primed to come and pick me up if he, if he needed to. But again, a bit like my experience at the unit and a bit like lots of elements of my recovery, it was almost like little steps and, and building back up. And once I'd done that one run, I thought, actually, I remember how good it feels to run in a group and, you know, to be able to catch up on on what people have been up to and, and to feel like you're not really noticing the miles. And I think, you know, often with these things, the anticipation that can be worse than the experience. Mm. And actually, it, it really did build from there. We, you know, a couple of us decided to do the Bath Half Marathon to raise money for the unit that I was an inpatient at. And I've also qualified as a UK athletics run leader for the group. So I take out now groups of women and we're looking at working with our local mind to do some mental health support with running or, or with walking groups even and, and things like that. So it, it has just built in this in this awesome way. Oh, it's amazing. Michael, one of the big things I think, so Sarah had such a great treatment experience in the fact that she managed to have that conversation and started off her journey and was within the system, if you like, with of that system of support. But a lot of other women potentially might be turning to Google or Instagram at the moment to seek support. Can we just have a bit of an honest conversation about where is the best place to go and seek support from if you do feel that you are suffering from depression or another mood disorder? And do you have any tips on opening up that conversation? I think, again, that's going to be different for different people. And I think one of the things that many people with depression feel and experience is isolation and also shame. But the isolation is something that can be through a number of different ways. And those don't necessarily have to be specifically through something that's directed at mental health. There are lots of ways that people can get involved with groups. And I think being involved with a group is a way of people feeling less isolated, which is a a big part of getting out of a depressive episode. There are on various websites, places that you can access other help. I'm having a mental block on thinking about them all, but places like mums.net is one that many people have heard of. Yeah, and you, you end up sort of get, getting given a bit of a list of, of places you can try. I know Pandas is another organisation mm. where there's a real primary step into that world of support, particularly for sort of perinatal mental ill health. I mean, there's a great charity that's local to, to certainly the southwest of England called Bluebell. But I'd say that any of those, you know, Mind, even the Samaritans, I'd say any of those well-known and and sort of first point of entry charities and voluntary organisations would certainly signpost in the right direction. But I have to, you know, I have to give a big shout out to to GPs, to health visitors. I mean, you know, as a pregnant woman, you would know, Amy, you've got these pinpoints, haven't you? You've got these access points into 
the world of supporting uh, mums. And they are, you know, a, a wealth of information, midwives, nurses who you see maybe for, for a vaccination or for a, a, a blood test or something. I mean, they've all got their own sort of experience, but certainly will know how to sort of funnel you in. And, you know, I found certainly the second time around when I was sort of trying to create this support bubble, that, that as soon as you say, you know, I'm really interested in, in maybe accessing some support for my mental health, either because you've had previous experience or just because you say, you know, I've, I've started to feel a little bit of anxiety or I feel like it's something that I might benefit from. And, and even postnatally, all those people should hopefully be able to recognise that and say, right, great, here, here's who you could talk to. And even if that's not the right person, then, you know, the hope is you'll get to the person who you'll need, as it were. Michael, this area of interest for both women and experts is obviously growing, hopefully along with the awareness. But what would you like to see happen? Is there an area that you'd like to see developed more or researched into? Well, we published a study recently where we've looked at the brains of women who have had postnatal depression in the past, just as they're coming up to the phase of their menstrual cycle where hormones are also dropping premenstrually, to see whether there are differences in the way that their brains are functioning compared to women who have perhaps had depression at other times, so not around the reproductive time, and women who have had or have never had depression before. And although it's a very small study, and one must be careful not to make too many inferences from it, it suggests that women who have postnatal depression have brains that are functioning differently at that time to women that have not had postnatal depression in the past. So one of the things that I would like to see happening in the future is ways of picking out women who are more at risk and also trying to fractionate out women who have got postnatal depression into specific subgroups in order to target more specific treatments to them. And this isn't just the case for perinatal psychiatry. This is the case for medicine more generally, this idea of personalized medicine, which gets banded around quite a lot in terms of what actually it means. But being able to find what we call biomarkers, markers that actually disentangle those people that are at risk and the kinds of treatments that are likely to benefit them, I think is the way forwards. So that's what I would like to be developing more research in and what there, there needs to be more research in going forwards. I think the other thing that's important is developing more treatments. At the moment, we're limited to psychological treatments, pharmacological treatments. Many people either don't respond to either of those or certainly with regards to medication, don't want to take them during pregnancy. So one area that I've been very interested in, got a bit of a long name, is called repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation or RTMS, which is a way of using magnetic currents to stimulate parts of the brain that are less active during pregnancy as a way of, again, jump-starting things. But RTMS would be an ideal thing for women who are pregnant because it's not a medication. It can be delivered in a relatively short period of time doesn't require people to go out running and um, make demands them like that, but it does involve them going to a treatment centre. But it's things like that, the non-pharmacological alternative things that have an evidence base. And NICE does support, that's the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, the use of RTMS for depression. But that's just an example of the sort of treatment, because of non-pharmacological treatment that I think needs to be looked into more as opposed to just the basic two that we're looking at at the moment, the medication and the psychology. Gosh, that's so interesting. And Sarah, obviously, Michael's just spoken about the treatment. You've been so brilliant sharing your experience and speaking out about it. For anyone who's listening in, who has potentially experienced what you've experienced in the past or maybe going through it now, would you mind just sharing some words of encouragement for these women? Of course. One of the amazing things that, that's come out of my journey is I've been lucky enough to become a peer mentor for the unit that I was an inpatient in. And that means that I, I do get the opportunity to meet women who are currently in this experience or going through this journey. And, you know, I just want to say to anybody who might be listening who feels that this could be them or this has been them or that they may be worried that it, it 
you know, it might happen at some point because they've got some experience in the past. With the right help and support, honestly, it will get better. I, I'm true living proof, having been to the, you know, the real depths of despair. And I've, you know, been lucky enough to have the right kind of support. But that support is, you know, available to everybody. It's just finding the combination and reaching out to the people that you trust, be that friends, family, colleagues, you know, anybody who you trust, but it, it will pass, it will get better. And and that hope needs to come from you and, and in any form that you can grab hold of. So whatever it might be, just just take it and know that it won't last forever. Like all these things in motherhood, you know, this too shall pass 100%. <laughs> And if anyone is local to your area and wants to join your running network, how is yeah. it how is the best that they can do that? So if you just search for Hannah the Runner, if you're in the Bath or Southwest area, she's on Facebook and Instagram. She's got a website. Get in touch. Love to hear from you. Always looking for new runners to join the community. And there's something for everybody. Brilliant. And Michael, for anyone who's listening in who wants to follow your research or potentially come and come to your clinics, where is it best that people can um, get in touch with you? So I run a service at the Maudsley called the National Female Hormone Clinic, which would be an area to access the type of research and treatments that we're talking about. And that's a tertiary referral centre, so you can be referred from anywhere around the country. With regards to research, if you look up my name and go to King's College London, some of the research is uh, listed there and you can access some of the papers. Brilliant. Well, thank you both so much for coming on and having this conversation with me. I found it really eye-opening just from a personal um, level, but also just to understand how both experts approach it, but Sarah also your experience of it. So thank you for sharing it with us. Um, For anyone listening in, I will drop all the references into the show notes with regards to research papers, links, advice and services and do come back next week thank you very much thank you thank you team thank you so much for listening if you like this episode please do rate review and subscribe it really helps other runners in need of some help find the show and join our community too don't forget to use hashtag welfare on all your ig posts because i love seeing them thanks very much guys Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.